How does design unlock your creative ability? Why is it so hard for us to tolerate ambiguity? Can the fundamentals of design help us to learn more quickly? I'm Bon Ku, the host of Design Lab, a show where we explore how to design healthier lives. Today's guest is Sarah Stein Greenberg. She's the executive director of the Stanford D School. Sarah leads a community of designers, faculty, and other innovative thinkers who help people unlock their creative abilities and apply them to the world. Sarah speaks regularly at universities and global conferences on design, business, and education. She has an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business and a BA in history from Oberlin College. Sarah serves as a trustee for RARE, a global conservation organization, and she spends her free time as an underwater and wildlife photographer. She lives in San Francisco. If you enjoy listening to our show and the guests that we bring on, there are three ways to support us. One, sign up for the Design Lab newsletter. You can find a link in the show notes. Number two, go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, and leave us a comment. And number three, tell a friend or colleague about the show. And now here's my conversation with Sarah Stein Greenberg. Sarah Stein Greenberg, I'm so excited that you're on Design Lab. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So you're the executive director at the D School at Stanford. I have visited there multiple times. It's a magical place for me. And so much of my work has been inspired by you and the D School. For listeners who don't know what the D School is, can you explain what it is? Happy to. The D School is a little bit of an unconventional place at Stanford in that We are within the School of Engineering, but we actually have both students and faculty from all seven schools who are participating in our classes. So we have students from the med school, we have students from the, you know, humanities and sciences school, people who are, you know, about to launch new companies and go into business, people who are studying public policy. Like it's this incredibly radical mix of people from all different disciplinary perspectives. And we offer both elective courses for those students coming from all different places. And then actually very soon, we're going to begin offering design degrees as well, both for undergraduates what? and graduate really? students. Right, this is, a, this is like so a, a big cool. shift. It's Breaking really news. exciting. And then we also have programs and do a lot of experimentation and a lot of collaboration with folks who are industry, who are in government, who are in the social sector, who are in higher education beyond Stanford, K-12 education. So the place is this very dynamic mixture of people from all these different perspectives who have a common interest in figuring out how do we use design to tackle really interesting, important, sometimes social types of changes or challenges where we actually need more creative thinking. So it's a little bit different from a traditional design school when a lot of your students come from all over the university. Exactly. And we really strongly believe that that multidisciplinary mix leads to really interesting outcomes and in some cases solutions that then get launched into the world by our students. So you see this very interesting dynamic happening when you get a group of students who are coming from these different disciplinary perspectives together. You see 
that, you know, the way that law students are being trained to think is really an advantage in some circumstances and also can really hold them back in other parts of the creative process. And the same thing for engineers and the same thing for business students. That knowledge, that self-knowledge that students walk away from, I walk away with, I think can be a very powerful way to then be able to reflect and then figure out, okay, what do I need to do to build my own creative practice over time? My brain exploded when I first visited the disco because I, it would just seem so obvious, but we, what you do such a great job at is the actual physical design of the space fosters creative thinking. And it looks so different from other spaces I've been in. I'm like, whoa, this totally makes sense. And, you know, this is audio podcast, but can you walk through listeners of what the D school looks like, or what are some examples of how the physical space lends or fosters creative thinking? There are so many examples, but I'll say, I think one powerful experience that people often commented a comment on is that the exterior of the building actually looks exactly like all of the other buildings in our immediate neighborhood on campus. And so then when you walk in, I think there's this sort of powerful experience of surprise. Mm. And one of the things that people are surprised about often is the degree of flexibility that's built into the space. So much of our furniture, you can move around and you can continue to adjust based on the needs of the group. So, you know, for example, our classroom spaces are, we call them studios, which is a reference to like a soundstage or a movie studio. And the idea there is that, you know, at the end of a class, the furniture gets reset into a totally neutral position, right? All the chairs are put away, the tables are put away, the whiteboards are put away at the edges of the room, and maybe there's like a couch in the middle. And the reason for that is to actually create a situation where every time you're coming in to use that space, whether it's for a workshop or a lecture or some kind of design-driven experience, you have to really think and be intentional about what kind of space arrangements and furniture arrangements are going to support the behavior that I'm trying to elicit right now? So not in a generic way, not in a kind of one size fits all way, but like literally, do I need the students to be upright, generating lots of ideas, leveling the hierarchy between them by having you know everybody at the same height? Or do I need people to be working together in small groups and reflecting on an object or an artifact? And the types of design that you might put into the arrangement of the furniture would be, you know, pretty different for that, for those two settings. So that point of view was arrived at actually after much experimentation and prototyping, uh, because the building that you visited was uh, not our first home on campus. So we were the very first building that the D school was in was out on the edge of campus. It was actually a double wide trailer. And when the D school was sort of originally licensed to operate at Stanford, we got assigned to this trailer and the faculty actually went in over a winter break and like built some furniture by hand and got it up and running in just a matter of a few weeks. And then because of space constraints on campus, we moved multiple times between then and landing in the building mm -hmm. that you've seen. So I think one of the reasons that our space functions as well as it does is because it is not the product of like some beautiful concept that was known at the start. It was actually the result of a lot of active experimentation, observation, and seeing what was and wasn't working in our current space, and then iterating and building something new in the next space. And the final thing I'll say about that is that because we knew that all of those moves were coming, 
it allowed us to not overinvest in expensive furniture that then would be hard to part with. Right. So there was like a lot of trips to Ikea in the early days. There was a lot of, you know, like putting together whiteboards using old garment racks. And I just want to say, you know, the work that was put into this by folks like Scott Dorley and Scott Widoft and Charlotte Burgess Auburn and many others, a lot of that wisdom is captured in an amazing book called Make Space, where they document a lot of these ideas. Great book. I have that book. So I just, I highly, highly recommend that. And it's very interesting how important the space has been in the culture and in the operations of the D school over the years. Yeah. We'll pull a link for Make Space in the show notes and- you give permission for learners to mess up the space, which is so different from if you think of higher education, you go into classroom, it's often the mindset is don't mess up the space. It's 180 degrees different. And it's such an inspiring space that I don't know if you know this, but so the faculty who joined my lab at my university, part of the onboarding process is I send them to the D school for the boot camp. And that's kind of like their introduction, creative thinking, and you just got to go to space and, and experience it. How have you adapted your own space in your lab in any ways that are trying to support the kinds of behaviors that you're trying to elicit? It's a lot has been stolen from you all. <laughs> like we have almost everything is on wheels, our tables and our chairs. We took some lessons of very cheap furniture with the purpose of that we could like scrap it if our space is changing and also feeling that we can redesign the space over the years and not having this pressure to go, we need to get it right the first time and visiting your space. We realize, Oh yeah, things don't need to be static. Like we could re-engineer your space. So our lab, the, the layout has changed over the years, depending upon if we needed 3D printing or bioprinting and the classes that we taught. So yeah, everything is movable in our space. I wouldn't have thought of that if I didn't visit the D-School. Yeah, I think that is a important thing to bake into a creative culture within an organization is like that expectation that like, hey, we're clear about what we're doing right now and we've designed our space accordingly, but we haven't designed it in such a rigid way that we're not open to learning something new, seeing a new opportunity, and then reorganizing how we're working as a result. And I just, I think that's, it's a, it's kind of an important long-term view that you have, but then you can make short-term decisions about what, you know, what gets bolted down in the, in the near term. Also that you don't need an expensive space, right? All you need is kind of like an open space. And I think a lot of people in organizations get held up because like, oh, we need all this money to build out the space with like glass walls and stuff like that. But no, you could make a very flexible space on the cheap. Well, I think that the ways that you see so many designers work is like, They just express their ideas in a physical form, whether that's through drawing or writing or with paper or, you know, just like extremely simple materials. And there's something about a space that has like expensive furniture in it where you like don't want to accidentally like drag your pen over the edge of the plate, right? Or, you know, where it's like the whiteboards are so clean that you feel like you don't want to make a mark, right? That that actually, I think, really inhibits that behavior. Mm -hmm. And particularly for people who are less confident about their um, visualization skills or their prototyping skills, it really is like if the space is all clean and steel and glass and beautiful, you're kind of saying, you know, make at that level. 
right? That's what the standard is. That's what good looks yeah. like. Whereas like, you know, I'll never forget, like there's a very intentional decision made in the edges of the tables that we use to show mm. the layers of the composite board that goes into those. And that was like a real choice that was made on the part of, I think that was Scott Woodoff who, who designed uh -huh. those tables was like, no, show the process, right? Like, let's not omit the fact that things are built over time and that you want to be able to see some of the roughness and some of the, the process showing through, because that's exactly what we're asking our students to do is to show their work, to show unfinished yeah. work, to show early prototypes and be open to the experience and the vulnerability of sharing something before it's in its, you know, beautiful, polished, finished form. You have a new book called Creative Acts for Curious People that was published last fall. Is this book for designers? This book is for anyone who wants to use design. It could be for people who are thinking about a career as a professional designer, and it could be for folks who are in you know, a field where they are not wearing the title of designer, but they want to behave in some of the ways that designers behave, right? They want to brush up or learn some new creative skills that they think could actually help, you know, move the needle in terms of being innovative within their own field. So a lot, a lot of doctors are listed to this podcast. Would this book be for them? I certainly hope so. Um, and there are some contributions by doctors as well in the book. So there are exercises and uh, techniques in here that are about how do you really listen to people, right? And understand their stories and then create media artifacts that actually show those stories. There are exercises that are about how do you build your ideas in those lower resolution, you know, sort of rough and ready prototyping ways. There are even assignments that are about how do you get better at noticing the things that you're overlooking, right? Which I would imagine is a critical skill for anybody who's super busy, but, you know, physicians among them, right? It's like, yeah. we all get accustomed to seeing the things that we're accustomed to seeing. And it's sometimes hard to step out of that, those kind of like mental grooves and start noticing the things that you might be missing. So there's a, there are lots of assignments that are around that. So I have written this in a way that is meant for anyone who is looking to brush up some of those creative skills to be able to access. The other thing I'll say is like, I will not be offended if people do not read this from front to back. I would be surprised. In fact, if someone what? did, really? there's, there's over 80 different assignments that we teach in the D school in it. And what I think people are really doing is dipping in and out and using this as a resource over time, because sometimes the skill set that you might want to work on is around noticing or training your attention in a new way. And sometimes it's around how do you bring a group together and launch a new collaboration? So there's really a wide range in here. And my hope is that people are able to connect with the set of assignments that are really meaningful to them. Cool. Do you have exercises for people to tolerate ambiguity? I know that you have spoken about how design can help us tolerate ambiguity. And as a physician, we do not tolerate ambiguity well at all. In fact, ambiguity scares, I think, most physicians. Well, I think ambiguity scares most of us in a lot of cases, actually. I mean, human beings are likely to have what's called an intolerance to ambiguity, certainly in certain circumstances. And many of us, when faced with an open-ended challenge or a problem, we exhibit what's called the rush to closure, right? Like you want to solve that problem as quickly as you can and get out of that messy zone where you don't quite know what's going to happen. We have a preference for certainty and clarity. 
And one of the things that we find with people who are starting to learn design is a need to one, call attention to the fact that actually in design ambiguity is something you want to invite into your process, right? Mm. Like if you were starting a project or you're starting out to try to improve like some part of your patient experience or some part of your retail environment, and your aim is to do something innovative, right? Like you actually have to start from the premise of you don't know what the answer is. And that is very unusual for many of us, right? It's like, that's that's an uncomfortable feeling. That's a, a feeling of admitting ignorance rather than knowledge or expertise. I trained my whole life to know the answer. That's, what you- <laughs> that's right. And people look to you for the answer, right? So it's actually particularly yeah. hard if you're in certain professions or if you're in certain leadership roles, right? To say like, we don't know what we're going to produce at the end of this, right? So even just saying like, there is going to be ambiguity along the way. And in this case, ambiguity means like, well, we're going to come up with a bunch of different ideas and we don't yet know which one we're going to pursue, right? In fact, we're going to probably pursue multiple of those ideas. And in fact, we don't even sometimes know which problem we're going to select, right? Because as you start, you know, any kind of design work, you want to remain open to learning things that you didn't even know were part of the needs or part of the opportunity. And so there is a significant period of working in a design-oriented way where you are exploring multiple directions and multiple possibilities. And that is really key to landing in a more creative or more innovative place than where you've started. But as I said, that is really a challenge. We are uncomfortable with that by nature. And then I think a lot of the ways in which we're educated and how our organizations are formed and what we're rewarded for actually really runs counter to keeping that problem space open while we're still exploring all of those different directions. So I would say it's definitely not just folks in the medical field. It's really all of us who need to find ways to acknowledge like ambiguity is actually a healthy part of a creative process because we're inviting Mm -hmm. an opportunity to see something new, to go in on a less traveled path and to come up with something that actually is both innovative and responds to needs that maybe nobody has has identified before or, or have been overlooked. The reason it's so important to be able to stay in that ambiguous space, perhaps for longer than we're used to or comfortable with, is because so many times when we get handed a problem or a challenge, the framing is full of kind of conventional wisdom, or it's a, a fairly conventional framing. And so our first job in design is to question, like, is this the problem that we want to solve? Is this actually where the opportunity lies in this particular situation? And there is a story in the book that I open with that tells about the experience of four of our students working actually on a healthcare challenge. Oh, cool. Where the brief that they were given was around affordability, around efficiency, And what they noticed in this particular case was that they had an opportunity to really design something that would support the experience that family members of people in this hospital ecosystem were going through. And I won't tell the story at length here, but you can read about it more in the book. And actually the team of students that I'm describing right now went on to found an organization called Nura Health, which has been incredibly successful at scaling their patient and family member educational offering all over South Asia in a way that leads not just to alleviating the anxiety and the concerns and the kind of information asymmetry that was being experienced by those patients' family members while they were waiting in the hospital, 
but also actually is helping reduce hospital readmissions and post-surgical complications. So they had, they started that project with the idea that they were there to help the hospital be more efficient, reach more people, a number of different ideas. They found this really important need along the way by remaining open to new observations. And what they ultimately designed has had a very, very powerful effect both on the way that one of the founders describes it is like, if they started out with a brief that was about reducing hospital readmissions, they might Mm -hmm. have come up with something interesting, but they would not have landed on the solution that they did, which was all about involving and engaging and equipping the family members of the patients to be part of the care team. So that is a beautiful example of where the problem is framed wasn't bad, but it wasn't really connected to the opportunities that existed within that particular hospital ecosystem. And so because the students went in and were able to tolerate that ambiguity at that moment, they actually found another direction that turned out to be incredibly innovative and powerful. I love that example because a lot of times when we present a problem that needs to be solved, the design process can help us find actually a better problem to solve. That's right. That relationship between problem solving and problem finding is so critical in design. And really, you know, it's just about across the board. Most of us are not trained to be great problem finders. And that is one of those things that design, I think, really specifically equips you to get better at. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, there's so many directions I want to go here. You wrote about this tension between framing a problem and jumping to a solution. And especially I'm going to pick on physicians, you know, because I am one, we often jump to the solution so quickly. And when I teach design to medical students, I have to get that mindset or that approach out of the head because we are pressured to get to a solution very quickly. Why is it beneficial sometimes to not jump to the solution so quickly? Well, I am curious as to whether this is ever true in a diagnostic setting. Let me back up. My observation of working with med students over the years is that there's something, maybe this is my hypothesis, there's something about the way in which you're trained in the diagnostic process that reinforces that instinct to try to, you're you're like eliminating all the wrong possibilities as quickly as possible to get to the right answer, right? Yes, 100%. And I've kind of seen that med students then bring that posture into, you know, like into brainstorming or into prototyping. And so there are these moments where you can tell that the disciplinary training is in tension with what the design behavior is that we might be looking for. And like Mm. just a small example would be, If you're trying to generate lots of ideas, which is a really important practice because often the early ideas you come up with are the most obvious and traditional. And so you want to give yourself the push to come up with as many ideas as possible. If you start critiquing those ideas along the way and judging them and dismissing them, you might not only censor other people unintentionally in your group, but you might censor yourself, right? It's like you might actually constrain your own potential to come up with things that are more novel and more interesting. So separating that process of judging or critiquing from producing or generating is incredibly important. But I think that Mm -hmm. what's happening in like a diagnostic process is those things are happening almost simultaneously or as like as fast as possible and connected. So, but you you tell me if that's right. Is that, does that match your own experience? 
Yes. You know, especially in terms of getting a diagnosis, what we do is we see a problem, we see some symptoms and we formulate a differential diagnosis. So here are the 20 causes of chest pain. And then our inquiry is eliminating those differentials, those diagnoses and coming up with one answer to explain the patient's symptoms. But often we don't get a diagnosis. There's this thing called diagnostic uncertainty that I think about only 30% of the time or 30% of the time when someone comes into the emergency department that we don't find a diagnosis. Like it's pretty high. And you would think the way that medicine is taught and with all the advanced diagnostic imaging that we will always have the answer, but a third of the time we don't have the answer. And that makes us feel uncomfortable but we've also built the system where patients feel uncomfortable. They feel uncomfortable with this diagnosis uncertainty. And for many reasons, yes, because like they want to know what's going on, but medicine is an imperfect science. Right. And of course, on the patient side, we don't want that to be true, right? We want to come yeah. to you and get the answer, right? And the cure all at once. You know, I think that's really interesting because you're describing this sort of like the system and the culture within the field is reinforcing the sense that you ought to have the answer. And that puts a lot of pressure on those moments when you don't. And what that makes me think of is what I see happening with folks who are starting to gain confidence and competence in their design work is that they're able to say things like, I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I know the process I'm going to use to get there. And then they're mm. able to be very explicit about that with their teams or with their leadership. And there is a real value in being able to acknowledge when you don't have the answer and almost in the same breath, being able to say, and here's the next thing we're going to do, right? I'm not saying we'll never have the answer. I'm just saying we don't have the answer yet. And we're going to remain open to possibility. And here's the process that we're going to use. So I think, you know, design is a field where we talk a lot about the process that we use. And we have a strong mm -hmm. belief that like how you do things, the process by which you do those things really affects the outcome. And mm -hmm. it's very interesting to me sometimes when I'm speaking with people from other fields who have a different perspective on like process versus outcome and, and a different sense of what that relationship might be. But in design, we're like constantly talking about how do we change our process? How do we improve our process? What other methods, what other tools mm -hmm. and the linkage between how we behave and how we collaborate and how we connect with others throughout that process has a huge, huge impact on what we produce. You have written, I'm going to say direct quote, the fundamentals of design help you learn quickly. What does that mean? So I think that one of the things I see being so valuable about design for just about anyone, and that's why this book really is written for anyone, is that in the moment that we're in globally, where there's like, rapidly emerging technology. There's all kinds of new, you know, public health challenges. There's really challenging political discontent going on. I mean, there's just, there's so many things. There's, you know, climate change. We are in an era where as leaders, as citizens, we all need to be thinking about how do we learn how to adapt to all of these new things that are coming down the pike, right? Whether that's like, how do I figure out how to organize my family in an era where sometimes my kids are online for school and sometimes they're in person for school, or whether it's about, you know, a climate threat that might be facing you in your particular part of the world, 
or there's this new virus that's out here <laughs> that we, for example, we haven't seen before. For example, How do we that's treat a good it? One. How do we respond to it? Right. There's no vaccines for it. It's like for me, there's this like kind of new skill that we all need, which is like, how do I learn quickly? Right. Mm. How do I consider myself a continuing learner throughout the course of my life? Because I'm going to be faced with these challenges that I wasn't trained for. Right. And so yeah. what I see happening in design is it is a pretty reliable tool to approach a challenge that you might be fairly unfamiliar with and use a robust set of tools to be able to quickly learn about what's going on. So to be able to connect with folks who are experts in that community or who really understand or have a particular historical perspective, to be able to use the tools of observation and interviewing to try to you know, elicit some unexpected wisdom or information about what's really going on, to be able to use mapping and information design to then find the interesting connections and connect those dots in new ways and actually find well, what is the problem here that we could tap into or the opportunity here that we could design for. And all of those are, I think, really great ways to start to lean in. And then, I mean, the other really powerful tool that we always think about in design is, well, I know our first ideas aren't going to be our best ideas or the last ideas. So mm -hmm. building those into very early stage prototypes, knowing that all of them are going to have big flaws, but that they're tools for learning quickly. That's how design, I think, can really help prepare us all for tackling these kinds of very confusing, fast-moving, fast-changing challenges that we find ourselves facing in today's world. You talk about how creativity is like a muscle. What does that mean? I think that's really related to my deep belief that it is something that everybody has and you can strengthen over time, right? It could atrophy or you could strengthen it. It depends on how you, you know, how you nurture that muscle. And I, I firmly reject the myth in our society that some people are creative and some people are not. That yeah. is, I the, think- a, The non-creative people go to med school. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> not, not at all, right? But I, I do think that that's, you know, we have this like over-correlation between like, oh, if you can't draw, then you're not creative. Well, that's just yeah. nonsense, right? So the kind of creativity that you see in- in all sectors from people who have, you know, a wide array of creative abilities is really powerful. So, I mean, I've seen that in the medical arena. We've seen that in like so many of the guests on your show, right. Who are applying those creative skills in an area, but you're also right, right. Like that things like skills like law and medicine are not typically where your creativity has been encouraged as a kid. That might not be where you see yourself or where you imagine yourself ending up. Yeah. I feel like there's not this invitation to be creative in medicine and other fields like maybe law where I actually felt like for so many years, my training was an anti-creative process. How does your book speak into that or can help maybe those of us who are trapped into certain spaces that don't invite creativity? Well, there are a number of stories that are in the book that I hope will start to give people some inspiration and some food for thought about how these kinds of practices can help in such a wide variety of sectors. So there are a few assignments actually that were contributed by several of our alumni who now run an incredible social impact design firm called Sevilla, who work on 
redesigning the public benefit system, like the way in which benefits are administered in the state of Michigan, for example. That's an area mm-hmm. where you wouldn't normally, you know, or maybe have a preconceived idea of like government, social services, like that's not where creativity lives, but it can, yeah. right? There's a wonderful assignment contributed by Jill Violet, who is the founder of Playworks and a newer organization called Substantial, which is all about redesigning the substitute teaching system which is really in need of new creative and innovative approaches. So there are a number of these examples. But the other thing that I'll say is that, you know, I really do think that because of the range of approaches that are in the book that, you know, come not just from me, but from all of these different contributors from the D-School community, I think there is something that will speak to everyone no matter what part of the creative journey that you're on, right? If you're just starting to think about your own creative abilities, there are wonderful tools in there that are about reflecting on where you are and building from there. If you're really you know, looking for some project-based challenges, there's a whole section towards the end of the book where you can start to like knit together your current skills and push them even further. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, sometimes I think about uh, broken systems like the healthcare system that I happen to work in. And it's so hard for me and my colleagues to think of a better future state. It just seems so, the problem seems so intractable, so huge, so complicated, so regulated. seems like things never change. Can design and creativity help us get to that better future state? I think they can. And I think this is an area where design is really evolving rapidly. So I'll point to some of the work that uh, my colleague, Lisa K. Solomon, and a number of our folks in our K-12 lab have been doing recently around taking some of the competencies that actually appear in another field, the field of futurism, and starting to think about how do we bring more of those tactics into how we're teaching design at the D school. Mm-hmm. And a part of that is about training ourselves to be able to think long-term and to have what another colleague of mine, Drew Endy calls positive dreams, right? Like a lot mm-hmm. of the science fiction that you read is really dystopian, right? Mm-hmm. But we actually have a lot of the tools at our disposal to create you know, a much more abundant culture and and state of living on this planet. And we don't always have the collective positive dream of what that could look like, which you're describing in the context of the the medical system, but I think is actually a, a broader issue. So I would say this is an area where we think it's actually really important that people who are in design and more broadly, all of us really start to learn how do we come up with these visions, these positive visions of the future. And some of it is highly related to how we think in design, like thinking in multiples, right? Some of it is about really thinking long-term, both historically and into the future. Can you envision, for example, your descendants many generations from now and going through exercises to make that feel much more concrete and tangible rather than just kind of an abstract idea can help you then stretch your thinking into the future about what the system that you're in might be like, or what kind of long-term impact it might have. Oh, my, my brain is, all, all these synapses are, are firing here. That was more questions here, but before we started rolling for this interview, we were talking about our common love of the ocean. So you are a diver. Does diving 
help you in your creative process? I think diving helps me in a couple of ways. I mean, one element of it is that when you're under the water for an hour at a time or so, you are focused on an incredibly small number of very, very important things, right? It's like, how much air is in my tank? What's my depth? Where's my buddy? That's basically what you're focused on. And I think that that process for me of slowing down and paying really close attention and, you know, I find that really restorative and really meditative. Mm -hmm. And then the second piece of it for me is just the unbelievable complexity and beauty of the coral ecosystems where I like to dive and all of the interrelated species that live together in interesting arrangements and just the unbelievable colors and patterns and the ideas that you can get from just being in a highly biodiverse place, I think is just a constant sort of fuel for me in ways that I probably can't even fully articulate. It's like, it gets me into that place of feeling energized and calm and creative in a way that is really, really, really special. So I don't know, that's how it factors in for me. I'm curious, like for you as a surfer, right? Like how does your, how does your interaction with the ocean show up in your own creative work? Yeah. For me, it's one of the few times when I can have my brain flow freely without distraction. With that, you know, I can't have my iPhone next to me and then I can let my my brain wander while I'm on the board waiting for a wave in the ocean. And like you, I love the complexity of nature in the ocean and it just captures, it just triggers all the senses, you know, and, and then also this discipline of surfing, at least on the East coast afforded me time to be creative in my work life because there aren't that many waves on the East coast. And so you really have to drop everything when there's surf and to be able to surf. So as a result of that, I built a work life, trying not to plan meetings because I never knew when there was going to be surf. So, and when I built that into my kind of work schedule, I ended up being able to have chunks of unprotected time and having unprotected time, that discipline allowed me to do some like deep work because I think it's so easy to fill our days, like every single minute with another meeting. And I was realizing I don't get any work done during these meetings because I can't get any work done during the daytime because of these meetings. So a side benefit to surfing on the starve waved East coast was that it helped me build unstructured time into my regular work week. That's such a cool outcome and like powerful to know about yourself that that's the structure that then helps you have the ability to come up with, you know, whatever more creative work that you're doing. I love your description of like, it's a place where all of your senses are engaged and you're making me think about the fact that like, you know, when I'm diving, if I want to look under something, I just turn upside down, right? Like I'm not limited by gravity in the way, I mean, there obviously gravity is still, still in effect under the ocean, but the way in which you're able to kind of break rules that you would normally be subject to on, you know, top side, I think maybe is also a piece of it that really appeals to me is that you have 
you kind of have more degrees of freedom in how yeah. you're you're physically engaging with the world. And that is, I think, related to the you know, underlying theme within design, which is like challenging assumptions and mm. really looking at things with a fresh perspective or with, you know, a new, new lens. Oh, we could talk all day long, but I know you have an extremely busy schedule and have a thousand more questions, but I, I just want to say that you and your work and the D school have really been inspiring to me. And this helped me rethink my career and how I should approach medicine. So thank you for your book for the generosity of uh, many people that I met through the D school who have taken me through the process. So really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan. Thanks for making time to come on the show. I mean, it's so wonderful to hear you say that. And I also just want to say that I think part of what makes the D school special is people like you who are in a particular area of practice in a particular field. You are doing the work to bring that creative process into your context and to adapt it and to bend it and to shape it in terms of what it needs to be in your particular context. So I'm so happy that you were able to, you know, get the resources that you needed, but also, you know, the, this is true about so many people who've had, you know, some small interaction with our work, but then, you know, you're doing it right. And then you're building this whole community through this podcast and through your work to be able to extend that reach. So I'm really grateful to you. Do yourself a favor and buy Sarah Stein Greenberg's new book, Creative Acts for Curious People, How to Think, Create, and Lead in Unconventional Ways. You can buy her books and other books on design at dschool.stanford.edu forward slash books. You can find Sarah both on Twitter and Instagram. Her handle is at S-T-E-I-N-G-R-E-E-N-B-E-R-G. And reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U and on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Plagisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover designed by Eden Liu. See you next week.